Praise the Lord. Good evening. It's great to uh, be with you guys from San Diego. And uh, I do, I do want to say that I love uh, Pete and Angie. And for a while they were with us in San Diego and came to our church. And um, Pete loves the Lord Jesus with all of his heart. That's all I can tell you. And so does Angie. And um, it's, it's just a great privilege to know him. Um, how many of you actually brought a Bible? Let me, if you would, hold that up. Oh, my goodness. Somebody ought to take a picture of that. You know, there's a lot of churches you go to, I guess, these days where they don't teach from the Bible or bring your Bible or get into the Bible. And um, for me... Uh, I really, the reason I would want to go to church is to hear what God has to say. I want to hear what the Bible has to say. And it's not any particular individual or great uh, powers of persuasion or great oratory um, or even, for that matter, speaking ability. But it is God's Word that is breathed, uh, divinely inspired, that speaks to us. And my hope and my prayer is that the Lord will speak uh, to all of us tonight, that we would hear what he has to say to us. Pete asked me to share a message about hope. Uh, I guess he's been doing a series uh, talking about hope, and I want to share with you uh, from Colossians chapter 4. Let's go ahead. Are you there? Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. And let's bow our heads and pray and ask for the Lord to speak to us and to teach us. Heavenly Father, we come before you and pray and ask that you would speak to us. I I thank you, Lord, for this church. I thank you that I can come here tonight, and and I am among my own family. I am with my brothers and sisters for all time and eternity. I look forward to getting to know them, Lord, one day, even better. But I thank you tonight that I can sing with them, I can worship with them, I thank you that your word is alive, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is able to minister to that deepest need inside of us. And surely uh, there are a number of different things people could be out doing this evening. But they are here. Lord, we are here because we need you. We love you. We worship you. And we love to gather in your name. Thank you, Jesus, that your promise says that wherever two or three are gathered together, I will be there with you. And so, Lord Jesus, our good shepherd, please, these are your children. They are your sheep. I pray that as we go through the word now, that you will walk up and down uh, the aisles and to each individual, Lord, every man and woman, every boy and girl, and that you will touch them in the area of their greatest and deepest need. I pray that you would bring the power of your healing. For Jesus, by your stripes, we are saved, and we are also healed and made whole. I pray that you would bring uh, comfort, Lord, to those who are suffering and in pain or in anguish. I pray that you would bring encouragement to those who are shy or fearful or timid. Lord, I pray that you would bring a personal word of direction for those who maybe are at a crossroads in their life, and they could go to the right or they could go to the left. 
But we're here tonight because we want to hear from you. We just, Lord, want to walk with you. We want to make sure whatever path we're on, it's the path that you have prepared for us. And we want to know that your hand is holding our hand. Lead and guide us, I pray, into the truth. And that knowing the truth, we will be set free as never before. And it's in Jesus' wonderful name we pray and ask all these things. And everyone said, Amen. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 4. And I notice that many of you, like myself, are maybe, you know, having coughing just a little bit. Go ahead and clear, let's clear our throats together, shall we? <clears throat> Marvelous. <laughs> and by the way, thank you for sharing that with all those around you. Um, all right. Now, the title of the message is Divine Breathings, which is just a uh, fancy title, I guess. But what I want to talk to you about is prayer. Um, we have just finished at our church, your sister church in San Diego, uh, called Maranatha Chapel, the book of Colossians. Now, it's a short little letter. It's only four chapters long. It is an amazing uh, word from the Lord. It is a powerful word of encouragement. And what makes it unique is, that, is the circumstances of our brother, the Apostle Paul. He is in horrible circumstances. He is in chains. He is in prison. Um, and, you know, he suffered greatly. This Jewish rabbi who came, who actually was opposed to Jesus. In fact, he knew that he was not only not the Messiah, but that he was a false Messiah. And he was so zealous and so... Uh, convinced of that, that he went around chasing after this cult of Jews who were saying that Jesus was the Messiah, though Paul knew that he had been crucified. They were sharing this story that he'd risen from the dead. And Paul was a very religious man, and he did not like that. And he began to harass and to follow and to pursue Christians and and then, of course, on the road to Damascus, he had an amazing thing happen to him. The glory of the Lord knocked him to the ground. And he looked up. I mean, when you see the glory, uh, the Hebrews call it the Shekinah, there's only one source for that kind of light, and that's God. He didn't know who it was. And he said, who is it, Lord? But the voice speaking to him said, you know, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he goes, and here's God. And he's saying, who are you? And the voice speaking said, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Now, what's amazing is, by the time Paul was going around persecuting uh, the people, Jesus was already gone. He'd already ascended. He was already up in heaven. But Jesus took it so personally that if you touched one of his sons or one of his daughters or one of his children... Jesus said, you touch me. You, you persecute them, then you're persecuting me. You put them in jail, you are doing it to me. He takes it very personally. And now, ironically, years later, Paul, who then was converted, and then, by the way, was struck blind, as you remember the story, his testimony is recorded in the book of Acts. And uh, he was blind for three days. And then on the third day, his sight was returned to him. Have you ever thought about, you know, when you are, here's a man who had seen his whole life, and then he sees the, the Shekinah, the glory of God, 
But he can't, now he can't see this world. So the only way that you can see is through your mind. Now, what do you think that in Paul's mind he saw for those three days? The last thing that he had probably seen with his physical eyes. For three days. It's almost like God said, I'm gonna, you're going to be blind to the earth and the sky and the mountains and the trees and people and plants and things. Paul, all I'm going to let you see in your mind's eye is the burning, shining light of my glory and the voice saying to you, I am Jesus of Nazareth. And then on the third day, boom, he's got his sight back. Now he can see. And that Jewish rabbi then went out, and, and along with the, the other uh, Jewish men, and they laid down their lives. They shed their blood. They died bringing the message of the gospel to the nations of the whole world. And that's why now 2,000 years later, uh, we live, even in this generation, there are over 2 billion people who claim to be followers of Jesus, starting with a very tiny group of Jews who then came to the Gentiles to share the good news. As Paul is now in prison, what is it that sustained him? I mean, uh, why, how did he find reason to go on living and, and to find hope? Now, you and I probably do not have a physical prison. Obviously, we are here. But there are a lot of different kinds of prisons. A prison uh, is a, a metaphor of constraint against your will, of suffering, of being trapped. And I would dare say that, that all of us, in a sense, uh, as we walk on this earth, uh, can fellowship with the sufferings of Jesus, or we can, in one way or another, it may be something physical that you're battling. You didn't want it. Uh, it's beyond your control, and yet you wrestle with it. There, there are probably in a group this size a number of people that have physical ailments. Yes, you can walk, and yes, you can come and sit in church, but you suffer all the time. There are others who have a prison in their own mind, something from the past that haunts them. And the enemy who, you know, if, if the Bible says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, it is also true that Satan hates you and has a horrible plan for your life. And that his design and goal, if he's lost the battle for your salvation, then at least he wants to rob you of the joy of your salvation. And he'll use something physical, he'll use something mental, he'll use something emotional, he'll use something in a, in a relationship that is uh, broken to wear you down and wipe you out. So I think that it is good that uh, your pastor Pete is saying we need hope. And where do we find this hope? Well, let's go to a man who was himself chained in prison and who wrote one of the most hopeful uh, letters that we find in the New Testament. Now, we're going to skip verse 1 because actually I believe that Colossians chapter 4 verse 1 goes to the, uh, the last few verses of chapter 3. And by the way, saying that is okay because uh, I don't believe that the chapters and verses are anointed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Bible is, but the chapters and verses were added hundreds of years later by translators so that we could all be you know, at the same place and figure out where we were. So that goes to uh, masters and, and bond servants, and uh, we don't even have slavery today. I think the principle would be those who are employers, uh, be faithful. 
You're going to be responsible for the Lord one day. And those who are servants or employees uh, know also that God is just and fair and he'll take care of you in heaven. But beginning in verse 2, Paul shares some of his final thoughts. He says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, the Messiah, for which I am also, he reminds them, in chains. Here Paul says in verse 2, he goes, you want hope? Continue earnestly in prayer. Do you know that the Bible actually tells us uh, that this is the calling of God's children to be in prayer without ceasing? The Bible actually says pray without ceasing. Um, and how do we do that? It, it's the experience of the early church, the, the book of Acts church, the apostolic church, uh, to pray without ceasing. How practically can you do it? Because sometimes in our minds we have to you know, have our hands folded or be upon our knees. Uh, we have to be concentrated in prayer. How can I pray really without ceasing? Well, there is a man named Thomas Kelly... He was actually a, a Quaker, and if you're not familiar with the Quakers, they are uh, a rather small group of people who, who devoted themselves to prayer uh, and meditation in the Lord. But he, he had a book, this uh, brother of ours named Thomas Kelly, and here's what he said about prayer. He said, there is a way of ordering our mental life on more than one level at once. On one level, we can be thinking, discussing, seeing, calculating, and meeting all the demands of external affairs. But deep within, behind the scenes, at a more profound level, we may also and at the same time be in prayer, adoration, song, worship, and a gentle receptiveness to divine breathings. Now, what, what is he saying there? He's saying that it is possible to be uh, at work or uh, whether driving your car. And by the way, I encourage you, when you want to pray while driving, keep your eyes open. (laughs) You you know, we always think when you pray, you have to close your eyes. But we read in the Gospels, Jesus opening his eyes and lifting them to heaven, prayed, uh, Father. So you can pray with your eyes open. You can even pray during or in between listening to and even being engaged in a conversation with somebody at work or at home or at school or some other, you know, kind of mundane activity uh, that you're doing, whether you're making your bed or you're fixing breakfast or whatever. You can actually be doing something physical on one level and at another level be in communion with God. Prayer uh, at its most basic, simple level if, you want, if you're taking notes, write down just this one word and, and think about it maybe this week. Awareness. Awareness. Being aware that I am in the presence of the Lord and that there is nowhere I can go I am not in the presence of the Lord. There is no time that I'm not in the presence of the Lord. Now, here a bunch of you have come to church on a Saturday night and subconsciously, a lot of times I think people think, oh, I'm going to church, I'm going to go spend time, you know, thinking of God or visiting God or worshiping God there at the church. But the reality is that the Spirit of God is with every single human being here in Albuquerque that is at home. 
or out to dinner. Uh, God is no more here than he is there. Now, yes, he is here in a special sense wherever two or three are gathered. He ministers within the body and the fellowship in a special way. But he's always with us. And therefore, when I'm aware that he is with me at all times, uh, as Thomas Kelly said, there's this kind of divine breathing that goes on um, where you don't even have to be praying words or thoughts so much as just being aware of the presence of God. There is a little book. Uh, that was written some time ago, hundreds of years ago, by a, a, a brother, Lawrence. It is called, it's a little book, it's uh, called The Practice of the Presence of God. I would recommend that book to, uh, uh, to all of you at some time in your life to read. It's not very long, it's very short, it's very simple. And what's amazing is, this guy, Brother Lawrence, he was a monk who lived hundreds of years ago, but he wasn't a theologian, he wasn't a, some great bishop, he was not uh, someone who wrote uh, great books and, and you know, tracts and treatises and things like that. In fact, his job in the uh, monastery, he was the cook for all the other holier guys and writers and you know, deep thinkers and, and powerful prayer warriors. His job was to be a cook in the kitchen. And he spent the majority of his time preparing three meals a day and then delivering, uh, serving three meals a day, and then cleaning up three meals a day. And yet, he wrote this, this tiny little book called The Practice of the Presence of God that has touched millions and millions of believers generation after generation. And this is what Brother Lawrence wrote. I'll just read one little um, Quote from him. He said, The time of business does not differ with me from my time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in his great tranquility as if I were on my knees. He purposed in his heart just even while he was there singing and, uh, you know, preparing meals or cleaning pots. Father, I'm with you. I love you. Thank you for the privilege of being your, your child. I, with everything that I do, I want to love you. And, and he did what he called the practice of the presence of God. It's another way of like, I, and I think Paul had that. Paul prayed without ceasing. It wasn't that he always had his eyes closed or was down on his knees. Paul was on ships. Uh, he was going by horseback. He would walk miles uh, a day. He was a missionary. He was visiting churches. He was uh, dictating letters. I mean, this guy was a, a whirlwind of activity. But no matter what he was doing or where he was, Paul had this amazing awareness of the presence of God. He prayed continually, and that's what he says in verse 2. And I would, I would say to you tonight that uh, we, we have a tendency to hold in our uh, fears, our anxieties, uh, our worries, and that's human. If you tonight have anxieties, fears, and worries, welcome to being a human being. You are a human being. Turn to somebody near you and say, I'm a human being. Did you know I'm a human being? Go ahead, turn and tell them. By the way, it's not unspiritual to be a human being. 
God knows, you know, we, we think that we're going to arrive at some level if we would only, if I prayed without ceasing, then I would be in a place where I don't worry or, or doubt or fear anymore. No, that's not the indication of the Bible. In fact, what, what can happen, though, is that I can take my fears, my anxieties, my concerns, and when I bring them into my prayer life open uh, to my Father in heaven, it changes me, it transforms me. God is not surprised by our humanity. He doesn't look and go, oh my goodness, he's a little anxious today. I didn't know that was coming. God knows everything. Any more than when I see, we're children. As a father, you look at your children. And notice as a parent, and those of you, how many of you are parents and have children? Okay, a lot of parents. You see your children, and you can see their little faces, how they get so worked up and so anxious about the smallest, littlest things. And you, you smile, you feel for them because, oh, they're so worried. And, and yet, you know, most of what they get so worked up about is not really that big of a deal. But because so, they're so tiny, their perspective is, oh, you know, they're crying. I'm thinking of my, I have two grandchildren, three grandchildren, actually. And, um, oh, my, my, uh, my granddaughter, oh, she is so thoroughly She's going to be an actress. She is so dramatic. She's so, I mean, she's so like her mom. And like her grandma. I'm serious. She'll turn and she'll cry at the drop of a hat. She has these curls. She looks like Shirley Temple. She looks like she's from a, you know, uh, 50 years ago that she should have been born then. And she has these big, bright blue eyes. And... In a moment, uh, she tears. They, they not only come down, but they shoot out from her cheeks. It's amazing. It's like a waterfall. It's incredible. And she even has, you know, oh. And so I, you know, the theatrics of it all, is the great thing about being a grandfather, by the way, I'll say this, for those who are not yet grandpas and grandmas, it is the greatest thing in the world. Had I known how fun being a grandpa was, or a papa, I would have started with them instead of my own children. But anyway, that's another matter. <laughs> but I love to dramatically respond. I get down on the floor. You know, mom and dad are like, oh, you know, uh, her name is Bentley. They named her after uh, my last name. And uh, Bentley Megan Stone is her name. And so I get, but I get down on the floor and I go, oh, Bentley, how could they come here to Papa? She goes, oh, you know, and wraps her arms around me. I'm like a hero. It's awesome. It's the greatest thing in the world, I'm telling you. But, you know, I, I think that our father, he, he likes it when we're dramatic. I don't think he wants us to pretend to be more spiritual than we really are. I mean, you know, when you're three years old, it would be weird to act like you're 40. You're, you know, she's a little girl. She's tiny. She, you know, it's, it's age appropriate. And I think that for us, uh, God knows we're in a fallen world, in a broken world. It, you know, I think that we feel like we have to present a much more spiritual person or prayer or that, that God surely doesn't want to hear what I'm really thinking and what I'm really feeling. Oh, yes, he does. And, and that, if you literally would take... Every time that you're anxious, worried, or fearful and turn that into prayer, you would be praying without ceasing. So, 
It's okay. Bring those things. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Um, He says being vigilant or being watchful. Be aware. Be alert. I believe it's time for the body of Christ to be awake. We are his bride. And uh, Jesus, you know, this uh, this is straight from the Bible. Jesus, your heavenly Savior, bridegroom who loves you so much that he died on the cross for you, is coming back for you. He has prepared a place for you. He is coming back, and so he says, watch, be alert, be prepared. For in an hour that you think not, that's when I'm coming. Like a thief in the night, I'm coming. And the idea is not everyone will necessarily be apparently prepared. But those who are in prayer are aware. Those who are in a continual awareness that there's my whole life is lived in the presence of God are watching and vigilant and spiritually awake. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. Or if you will, the Latin word is raptured. If you read Latin, your Latin Bible would say raptured. That's all it means is to be caught up in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Be watchful and be thankful. Ephesians 6, 18 Out of the Amplified Bible says, pray at all times, on every occasion, in every season, in the spirit, with all manner of prayer and entreaty. To that end, keep alert and watch with strong purpose and perseverance, interceding in behalf of all the saints. So you need hope if you are leaking hope. Uh, One way to get refilled is to begin to pray and to pray without ceasing. Then in verses 3 and 4, he says, Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. It is a mystery. It's more than we can explain or understand. Uh, How in the world, I don't completely understand it. No pastor does. The greatest, most brilliant theologians cannot The mystery that God became a man. God incarnated himself in human flesh and blood and bone and walked among us and let us see him and let us hear his voice and let us touch him and let us embrace him and let us experience him. Paul is saying, pray that we might have an open door uh, to share that mystery for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Or I think the uh, NIV says that I might make it clear. I believe with all my heart Jesus is coming, that he is coming soon. And I believe that we are, Paul Paul lived his life as if Jesus could come at any moment 2,000 years ago. How much closer we must be today. There are some that say, and and in fact Peter wrote, there are some that will say, um, oh, they've always said the Lord is coming, the Lord is coming. And, you know. It's been a long time. But Peter wrote that that with God, a a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. And there are many people, even with all the signs that are happening right now in the world, everything that the prophet said, everything that Jesus said would be the signs of the last days. He said there will be a regathered Israel. Uh, 
and Jerusalem would be a controversy and Israel would be surrounded on all sides by enemies, when that happens, lift up your heads for your redemption draws nigh. And there are yet many who do not see that or do not recognize that or are not aware of that. But I think he wants us to be aware of that, very much aware of that. And knowing then that, you know, while some say, oh, yes, sure, the Lord's coming back. Uh, You know, it's been 2,000 years. And yet from God's perspective, God says, oh, be careful. Because from his perspective, you say, on earth I've been gone 2,000 years. From my perspective, I've only been gone over the weekend and I'm coming back tomorrow. (laughs) For a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. But Paul says, I want to make it clear, making the gospel clear. Pray for open doors and pray for clarity. Now, I must say that too often that's not been the goal of pastors, priests, uh, teachers. Many times... The goal has been to impress people from the pulpit with how uh, spiritual or how smart or uh, how good that we may be. And um, that's not really the goal. Jesus, the gospel is simple. It is to be uh, shared clearly, simply, so that every nation, every language, every kindred, every tribe could understand it. God did not want the gospel to be for the really smart or the really wealthy or the really privileged or even, for that matter, for a special few. He wants the whole gospel to be given to the whole world. For God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of repentance and the experience of his love. Some have said too often there is a mist in the pulpit, and when there is a mist in the pulpit, there tends to be a fog in the pew. (laughs) C.H. Spurgeon was a pastor uh, from England of a century ago, and he's one that me and my uh, pastor friends, uh, Pete as well, enjoy. C.H. Spurgeon, preacher in London. And uh, here's what he said once. He said, Christ said, feed my lambs. Some preachers, however, put the food so high that neither sheep nor lambs can reach it. They seem to have read the text, feed my giraffes. And then there's another guy that, that wrote, uh, recorded this. There was someone who passed uh, the following on to me from a graffiti wall in St. John's University in Minnesota. And here's what was uh, scribbled on the wall. Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? And they replied, you are the eschatological manifestation of the ground of our being, the kerygma in which we find the ultimate meaning of our interpersonal relationships. And Jesus said, What? (laughs) We can become too fancy for our own britches sometimes. I like that. Simplicity. Jesus loves you. God loves you. Pray without ceasing. Be alert. Give thanksgiving. Pray for an open door. And when you share the mystery of Christ, don't act like you have all the answers or have it all figured out. But like a child, clearly share what Jesus means to you. And I have found, I used to think that the more knowledge I had, I could find someone who didn't know the Lord and I could, you know, win them by winning, answering every question and winning every debate and and having everything, you know, able to be explained. And I found that those who were smart enough to, you know, go back and forth just kept asking more and more and more questions. And before you know it, we're, we're way, way off on these tangents. 
And I found that it was far more effective to say, you know, uh, a lot of times, I don't know the answer necessarily to that question. But here's what I do know. And, and you see, Jesus came into my life. And here's what happened when he did. I wrestled with fear. I had a problem with anger. Uh, I, I was in trouble with my parents, with my brother, and at school. And I had guilt uh, and tension. And when I asked Jesus into my heart, I will never forget what, what happened to me then. I'm 48 years old now. It happened when I was 11. And even then, at 11, he came in and he gave me peace. Peace is, doesn't even begin to describe. It was like heaven came into my soul at 11, and I've never been the same since. Now, guess what? When I share that with somebody, I don't care if they're a Ph.D., uh, doctor, whatever they might have, because I've just shared my personal testimony, and nobody can tell me what I felt, what I heard, what I experienced. I happen to be the expert on my own personal experience. And so also you are the expert on what you have seen, what you have heard, what you have felt. Nobody can tell you what's gone on inside your heart. Only you can. And that's what Jesus is looking for, is those who will simply share what is often difficult to put into words, but can be communicated with love and with passion and simplicity from the heart with others. Now, verses 5 and 6, Paul goes on. He says, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. I like that. I I especially like verse 5 where he says, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, What does that mean? He means when you're dealing with people who are outside the family of God, be wise with them. Use wisdom when you want to share. And I must say that, and I'm sure you see this too, oftentimes Christians or those who are claiming to be Christians do not always use wisdom when they're dealing with the outside. They talk to those who don't know the Lord And wonder, how come you're not following the Bible? You're not living up to the Bible. And your morality doesn't meet up with the Bible. Well, they're not Christians. They don't know the Lord. They don't have the Holy Spirit. Um, So use wisdom. Jesus said, be wise as serpents and be gentle as doves. But be wise, especially because every time a believer comes in contact with someone who does not yet know the Lord, if you use wisdom... God may use you. Maybe they're not going to become a Christian and, you know, at this one moment or conversation, but you can be a, a light to them and an example to them, a, a humble person, a loving person, a genuine person. They may see a little bit of Jesus instead of seeing necessarily you. And that's good. There's nowhere in the Bible that says uh, that to be a born-again Christian means to be kind of annoying to those who are in the world. And yet I I have found a lot of annoying Christians. You don't have to be annoying. And there are a lot of people that say, oh, I don't want to be a Christian because I have to be like him or like her. And they just annoy me. And they'll say that to me. You know, you're a pastor. And what, you know, what about all the annoying people? I go, they annoy me too. (laughs) I am constantly 
For instance, uh, you know, I don't usually begin by telling people I'm a pastor, but if I'm on a plane or somewhere and then it comes, oh, so what do you want? So you're a pastor. Oh, well then, immediately you see their minds, what did I just say? Whoo, what was that? I shouldn't have said that. Did I cuss? Oh, man. They go through all of that. And uh, then finally they go, well, yeah, you know, uh, the reason I don't go to church is because of all the hypocrites. Man, there's hypocrites. And I go, well, I said, you're right. I said, well, then you might as well join our church because one more won't make any difference. I mean, <laughs> I mean, isn't it true that we've all been hypocrites at one time or another? We've said things we wish we hadn't said. We've gone off the rails. Um, <laughs> we don't need to be. Uh, to be humble and to be honest, look, I am a, I am a broken human being who has a broken heart and Jesus, in ways that can only be experienced, you can't figure it out intellectually and then join. It is something that goes, it almost it begins at the heart and then works its way to enlighten your mind and understanding. But he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into them and fellowship with them and have beautiful fellowship. I think it's interesting that there, Revelation 3.20 says he'll have fellowship and he'll have, uh, he'll, he'll have a meal with us. We use that scripture all the time. And when I give an invitation, behold, I stand at the door and knock. What does that tell us about our Messiah, Jesus? He's God. We believe that he is God in human flesh. He knocks on the door of people's hearts. He could knock it down. I made you. Boom, the door's knocked down. I'm coming in. But he doesn't. In fact, he stands outside politely, almost like a gentleman. He waits. He's very patient. He is extremely persistent. He will not go away. But he will not come in until the owner of the house walks to the front door, puts their hand on the doorknob, and of their own free will, opens the door and invites him in. That's Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, there is a word that comes up over 40 times. It is the word withdrew. Jesus withdrew from this city. He withdrew from that village. He withdrew from here and he withdrew from there. Now, why does Luke keep saying that over and over everywhere? Whenever someone would reject Jesus and not want him, he would withdraw. That shows the nature and the character of God. No one will be in heaven who doesn't want to go there. Only those who want to be there will be there. It takes two to have a relationship, not just one. And I think that we are far more mysteriously, amazingly, marvelously made in the image of God. And, and you know, I'm not speaking in theological terms here, but just that, that he, is, he is asking us, for the, with an invitation, please let me in. I'll prove to you how much I love you if you'll just let me in. I'll heal you. I'll forgive you. I will love you. I will fill you with joy and with peace. But I won't force you to follow me. I won't force you to believe in me. I won't force you to do anything you don't want to do willingly. From Genesis to Revelation, constantly God is saying, I want to work in your life in such a way that you willingly love me, willingly worship me, willingly follow me, and willingly and lovingly share me with many, many others. He says, 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if you do invite me in, I would expect Revelation 3.20 to say, then I'll give you salvation, I'll forgive you of your sins, etc., etc. Kind of a theological, doctrinal list of all the benefits. But instead, if you invite me in, we'll sup together. We'll have supper. Now, we, we spiritualize that to what it all means, but Jesus said we're going to have supper. By the, when, when Jesus comes for his bride, guess what? The first thing that's going to happen when we are caught up into the presence of the Lord, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, I don't know about you, but I like to eat. And I love having meals. And there is something about a meal with family who love one another that when you eat, and of course in, in Jewish custom, you relax. To, to sit at someone's table and to eat the same bread, that it, when you eat, it does something physio- physiologically, emotionally, mentally. Um, you just get happy and giddy and you start telling stories. And I believe that's exactly what Jesus was saying. I, I want to I eat with you. Sup with you, and in fact, it's my personal character that, as it were, through communion, that will be your bread, my word and fellowship that will be your drink, and that will give you life, and I will give you personal relationship. Now, Paul says, so when you deal with those on the outside, be wise, and then he said, let your words be seasoned, as it were, with salt. Now, I know I'm not speaking here as a dietitian. I know too much salt is bad for you. But let me say, on the other hand, no salt is really dull. I like salt. How many like salt? Now, I was taken, I, I hope I remember this right, but I was taken today to, uh, I think it's called El Pinto. Is that right? Isn't that where uh, the president even likes to go and eat? I saw his picture everywhere. <laughs> and then I heard that El Pinto has been published in the Wall Street Journal as having the best, uh, what is it, uh, nachos, the best nachos in the United States of America. Do you agree? I had them. I thought they were awesome. In fact, I want to go back and, and make sure because I want to judge fairly. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, I love it. You know, the avocado, the melted cheese, and... Oh, it's so good. <laughs> but salt, flavor. I think that God wants us to have flavor when we talk and when we share. Flavor, not the dull, sanctimonious speech that is sometimes demanded in some church circles. Oh, we don't talk like that. <laughs> and that there's this weird, you know, kind of new language, and it's like not real. Listen, uh, this word means to have flavor. It is joyful. The word means joyful, even witty. For that is what salty speech meant in ancient Greek. And I think that what that means is sometimes we're afraid to speak as a Christian because we don't feel qualified. We don't know enough. When in reality, what would be far more effective is if we just be ourselves. Just be yourself. Be real. Be who you are. For a long time, I tried to be somebody else. When I first was a pastor, I tried to be, because I didn't want to be me. I mean, I, I was young, I was 20-something and just starting a church, and who wanted to come here? Ray Bentley. Who's Ray Bentley? He's nobody. But I thought if I could be Billy Graham. People love Billy Graham all over the world. So I listened to his tapes, and I listened to his messages, and I memorized his 
points and, and the things that he would say. And then I got up into the pulpit and I became Billy Graham. Well, I hope you'll come to Christ. <laughs> you can go to heaven right now where the buses will wait. And then I noticed that Billy... Uh, he, I noticed that he always, has, he always had a lot of points. And, and I liked it, that he had points. It meant you're moving somewhere, you're going somewhere. And then thirdly... That sounds great, even if you don't remember what was third. And fourthly... Finally, my wife came up to me. She goes, would you stop being Billy Graham? So I went, okay. So I went back, and then I didn't get the whole picture, so I said, well, I'm still not going to be me, so I decided to become Chuck Smith. And I listened to his tapes, and I studied them. Uh, now, uh, the fellas will be going, and I, I believe that... And then, so I'm being Chuck... And then I would write, there were times I would listen to the radio and there'd be this long pause. Long pause. So much so that I thought, the radio lost, and I would turn the thing all the way up, and then boom, it would be really loud. So I would write into my notes, okay, at this point, just pause. And look, holy or something. So I would walk off over here and I would be pausing, and then I didn't even remember what am I talking about? I don't know. So I went home, and my wife said, Would you stop being Chuck Smith? Oh, yeah, well, who am I going to be then? She goes, Why don't you try being you? I said, I don't even know who I am. She goes, Well, start there. We're so afraid. We constantly are emulating and wanting to be like someone else when if we're somebody else, God only made one you. And when you start being genuinely, sincerely, authentically you, you'll be amazed that God can pour himself in you and through you in humility and honesty, uh, not in perfection, but in childlike simplicity and faith. And um, people sense that. They are hungry for that. The world wants that. The world isn't looking for perfect people. They know that Christians aren't perfect. But they want to see, how does it work in your life? We don't need judging and pointing fingers and that you're better than us. Jesus said, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. Amen? You know why you don't need to condemn people? Because the Bible says they already feel condemned. They're already carrying a load of guilt. That's why they need a message that will come and say, hey, you see that heavy thing that I see on your face and on your back and your shoulders? Let me tell you how that thing came off my back. And it's very real, personal to me. What you do with it is between you and God. But if you've got a minute, let me share with you. And so as we walk in prayer and as we love one another, Jesus brings hope in the midst of even horrible circumstances.